Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Chatter. I'm your host, Alex Partridge. This week, we're joined by a man who has drunk alcohol for four decades to the point where he was drinking a bottle of vodka every single night. And he's recently celebrated his four and a half year sobriety. He's a huge voice in the sober community. He has a chart topping podcast and a book called One for the Road. David Wilson, aka Sober Dave, welcome. Hello, Alex. That's a lovely intro. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me on today as well. A pleasure to have you and I've been looking forward to this podcast episode because as someone who, who has a, had a history of problematic drinking myself, um, looking forward to hearing your story. I'm sure there's a lot to relate to. I think for me, I'm always fascinated to, to unravel the, the journey of, of, of the alcoholic and, and someone in recovery and to, to look back into their early years and to, and to see if there was anything that happened back then that might have given some clues as to how things were going to go later on in life. If you, if you look back into your early years, is there anything that, any clues do you think that were there? I think so, Alex. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a house that uh, my parents really drank that much. My dad used to make his own wine. And for anyone who's as ancient as I am, they remember the demijohns with the little bubble thing on the top that I just used to obsessively watch this, watch this bubble going around. But I didn't know anything about alcohol. There was never heavy drinking or arguments in the household. So I, I can't sort of pinpoint it on learned behaviour like that. Um, but when I was approaching my sort of 13th birthday, uh, I noticed mum and dad were arguing quite a lot. Uh, and then we moved area. So I had to start school. Uh, in the second year then of a, a secondary school and I was petrified, absolutely petrified because I didn't know anyone and there was already cliques in the classroom and I walked in there and growing up I was extremely sensitive, shy, I didn't have a lot of confidence and I, part of that I think was um, it was a very sort of closeted upbringing. I never used to go out a lot. Um, it was almost a routine upbringing of go to school, come home. And I used to love uh, Meccano back in the day and Lego. <laughs> I was really good at that. I used to really focus on building things. Uh, and then I used to hear my dad clanking around in a garage on a Sunday. And... Uh, my mum used to play the carpenters and we'd have a good dinner. Um, so it was quite an old-fashioned upbringing. And then when I went to this school, it was a rough area and I saw these like clicky, what I would say back then is like gangs and I didn't fit into any of them. So I felt quite isolated um, and I hated the first three or four months. I didn't really fit in with anyone. I kept myself to myself, and I was actually bullied. 
by somebody who is half the size and he used to just whack me in the face and I would never do anything about it. I was too like petrified, I think, of if the others would join in. And then one day I got up and there was a letter on the table uh, for my mum and uh, I opened it up and it basically said, Dear Dave, I've left your father. Um, I don't know when, but I'll be in touch. And that is all it said, love mum. And I looked at it and I I didn't know really what to think of it. So I went to school, come home. My dad had got in from work. He was in bits because he had received the same kind of letter, you know. And then I had to go through weeks and weeks of my dad being upset. He tried not to show it to me, but I could see he was clearly upset. Um, my schoolwork went out the window. I was like just staring out the window, wondering what was going on. But then my dad met someone else. Um, and quite soon after that, I felt really, really isolated and lonely. And I used to sit in my bedroom, um, keeping out of their way. Um, I felt insecure, unloved, rejected, all these emotions. And then one day there was a knock on the door and it was this this kid with a load of other kids beyond him. And this was the click in the classroom. And they went, you coming out? And I I, uh, I thought, why not? So I went out of them and there was an area where I used to live in, in Carshorton called The Circle where there was this really well-known, like, gangsters pub up there. But we, we used to hang around their off-licence, and amongst us all, we'd have a bit of loose change and then give it to the adults to go in the off-licence and get some beers. And it's, that was the first time I drank, I think, properly, when I was about 14. Uh, and all of a sudden, I had incredible confidence. And I was never a fighter, Alex. So I was more of the funny guy. So... After a couple of drinks, I started, like, making little jokes and that. And they were going, oh, you're amazing, Dave. You're so funny. And that's where I fit in. It was a bit like the usual suspects where it was Mr. Pink, Mr. Black, Mr. You know, I, I was this character that was the funny one and not the fighter. But what I realized soon after that was because I took to alcohol so quickly, it numbed down my emotions it actually became a coping strategy pretty quickly in my life, you know, because I would go home again and, and my dad was with his partner and any opportunity I could, I would have a drink. And back then, um, you could go in a pub without ID. There was no such thing. And if you looked a little bit older, you would get served. And there was a pub there um, called the Skinner's Arms and had all the older lot used to play darts, pool, have a real old laugh and I'll get drunk on three or four pints and then the, the adults would just buy you a drink. Hey, come on, boy, have a beer, you know. So I think it was the that period of time that I went through with my mum leaving, my dad meeting someone else, that it was a real jolt to my nervous system and I, and I realised that alcohol actually did a job, which was to helped me with my emotions, it blocked them out, um, it made me feel accepted, um, I was funny, I was one of the lads, and I think it was a real love affair immediately with drink from the off. It's such a unique story to you, but the, the details of it and bits of it are very relatable. I, the, the alcohol almost fills a void, there's something missing that maybe you're not even sure what that is but then when you have that drink I think you said it, it calmed your mind did you you mentioned rejection a little did you react quite strongly to rejection when you were younger yeah I mean there's another layer of that as well I mean my mum and dad were amazing um we never had any money like literally I would go to school in second-hand clothes uh, I remember playing football against the teachers and they all had football boots and I had plimsolls and I was flying all over the pitch. I felt humiliated. But, it, you know, on the other side of the coin, my mum or my dad never put their arm around me, told me they loved me or they were proud of me. So I, I grew up quite needy, I think. And I was really sensitive as well. And I think 
by the time I met these lads and because they accepted me, I kind of grew up three years. So my mum, when she left, I felt rejected. But then when my dad met his partner, I felt there was a kind of feeling of rejection there. So when these lads took me in, I felt accepted. And with that was the coping mechanism as well. So it's almost like I trampolined into a young adult really quickly from being this kid sitting in his bedroom with his bloody Meccano and Lego to someone hanging around the shops over the road from the gangster pub to St. Elia Arms. And it, it was like I'd grown up in my mind. I was one of the boys, you know what I mean? But the mm. rejection kind of carried on throughout my life at different stages. So we all know that alcohol stunts your emotional growth. And I think it was only leading up to when I stopped, I realised that. I went into like a bit of a time warp of of not knowing who I was as an individual because I'd stunted all my emotions for four decades. I suppose alcohol is, is never going to reject you. It's, it's always there. It's always accessible. It's, you can rely on it to turn you into the person that you want to be you know back back then is that did you did you feel that way like you you might have had a rejection elsewhere but you knew that you could count on alcohol yeah it accepts you doesn't it it, it lures you in the, the way i look at alcohol when it's a problem it's it's very crafty very devious that it lures you in it knows what to say to you and this is why when people try to take a break from it uh the first couple of three days, they might be okay and they're white knuckling, yeah, I can do it, I can not drink and that. And then you get the the lovely warm voice coming in. It's, come on, you know you miss me. You know, it entices you in. So when I say I cope with it, uh, you know, the relation of the, re- the, the rejection or whatever, I, I paused it because it stopped me thinking about the rejection, right? So I went through my teens. I was a good footballer. Uh, I played most sports um, and I kind of carried on through my teens and 20s like a normal teen 20 year old like up until I was about 28 and I bought my own flat and um, there was a guy next door and I always used to hear him stumbling in and one day I was coming in at the same time as him and he went hello mate he said yeah I'm your neighbour he said do you want to come down the local tomorrow and meet all the boys and that and I did, and it was a Young's pub in Sutton, and it was it was one of the only pubs left that had a saloon bar and a public bar. They were split, so one was like the spitting sawdust, and the other's where all the suits went. So because I was in the carpet game, I was obviously in the public bar, and I I soon got nicknamed Glugs because I could glug the beer back. You know, I would have, and a lot of it, Alex, was nerves. You know, going in and meeting these people, so I drink really quickly. And I, I'll tell you about that later on. I didn't realise at the time why I drank so quickly. But, you know, I would go in there and I've had uh, light and lagers. And that was like a weird drink because everyone's on lagers. But I realised that if you had a half a lager and a, and a bottle of light ale, they'd normally pour you three quarters of a pint of lager. So you was always getting more <laughs> as how greedy I was. And I could do six, seven pints in, in an hour, hour and a half. You know, and I got a reputation down a pub until someone mentioned to me on one day, he said, come on, mate, you, you really, you're really caning it a lot. There's a lot of people worried about you, the amount you're drinking. And being like really hypersensitive, I really, I heard that, you know, oh my God, am I an alcoholic? What's going on? And this is where it changed because I then limited my drinking in public and I used to go over the off license over the road and get some for the, for indoors. And that's when it changed from social drinking to drinking indoors. And that just changed everything for me because then I would just go and have a couple of beers in the pub and then I started off with four cans of Diamond White, then it would be eight cans of Diamond White. And I don't know if you remember them, but they were 8.2% like mm. battery acid. And, and I would just go home and drink them and pass out 
But then I wasn't accountable to anyone. So it, it was safe for me. There wasn't going to be any more judgment. And it would be, actually, he's turned his life around. He's never drunk anymore, but they didn't know what I was doing indoors, you know. And then I moved. I was, so I went from my 30s, um, failed with relationships. I went through this theme of failure because of my drinking. And I took that as rejection. And when I was 40, I bought a cottage that was like two, three miles away. And this is, anyone that knows my story, have heard this where it really changed. It's that I, I stopped going out altogether. And it's really important people hear this, going from the transition of the pub to the drinking indoors to then the isolation, which I've heard a lot of people say, because alcohol's a cumulative, right? So, when, you know, I started to think, well, actually... If I buy three bottles of wine for 10 quid, there was an offer then back in the day. That's like three beers in the pub. So I can have three bottles of wine for that. So I started negotiating the price difference of staying in compared to going out. So I started drinking, say, two bottles of wine. But then I started getting stuck into the third bottle. right? And I, I wasn't concerned about the content or the amount I was drinking. I was concerned about the weight I was putting on. So I ballooned, Alex. Like I was literally stacking on the weight, poor food choices, laziness, lethargy, staying in on weekend, just drinking, watching the football. So then I did the the terrible thing. I Googled what alcohol has the least amount of uh, calories. Well, up hot vodka and 10 years of that... Uh, I was, towards the end, drinking a litre a night of vodka. Passing out, waking up. And I was holding down a job as well. Like, I had my own business, but I, I kind of weaved it in and out, you know. So, it it was just a road of destruction. Uh, and I've said in my book, I, I barely remember my 40s because of my drunken stupor throughout. Um, so I blocked everything out then. I mean, talk about blocking some of the feelings out in the beginning. I literally, it was like being in a Pink Floyd video or something. I, I was just away with the fairies constantly, you know. This is a huge question, um, and it's so individualistic for everyone. But what do you think you were trying to escape from with the booze? It's a good question, and it would be easy to say um, what happened when I was 14. But I think because I had, I would pretty much say, a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol pretty much from the beginning, I made a series of bad choices. I had no ambition. Um, and as I say to you, I had my own business, but it was barely running. I mean, I made some horrendous decisions. I lost thousands of pounds off the back of not doing quotes because I'd rather get drunk, not turning up for work. And I think it was, you know, a, a history of failed relationships. And I think it was extreme low self-esteem, lack of self-worth. I ended up hating myself, loathing who I'd become, coming from quite a handsome young lad playing football at a high standard, to this fat old man sitting at home, waking up and then drinking again, waking up, drinking again. And I think I lost all my self-respect, my self-worth, and I was on that hamster wheel of doom of continuous, I can't escape this, so I might as well carry on because it, it temporarily makes me feel better when I do carry on. And the thought of stopping feels too miserable for me that I'm I'm going to carry on. And at, there were certain points that I didn't care if it took me. Like, I would drink and go, go on then, is this the last one then, is it? Uh, that's a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. Thanks for being so honest. When, when you woke up after a big session and you were on your own, I assume, in your flat, and, you know, when you wake up, you, you're sober, you've got a cracking hangover I imagine how did you feel in that moment before you cracked on again for that day well 
the thing with me was I w- I've always been someone that roll up his sleeves, you know. So I I remember once I had this huge contract in a in a block of offices, and we had to start at six in the morning. And I said to my mate the night before, "I'm not going out. I'm not going out." He said, "Just have one." And I ended up getting in at four o'clock in the morning, and it was horrific, mate. Honestly, turning up this job, meeting the MD. And I knew I was probably still drunk, stinking of booze, looking awful. And I got through the day. And it was a weird sort of um, self-defense thing for me. It's almost a justification. And it it didn't do me any favors because when you said waking up with a, a hangover, I didn't really get hangovers because I think I was constantly filled with alcohol in my system that it I never allow myself to come down off of it do you know what I mean mm. and I, I would never drink in the day if I was at work or anything like that but I think I'd had so much from the night before by the time I was withdrawing in the evening I could start drinking again so I just carried on and on and on it was it was like a, a mad film that you'd watch and think god how is this bloke still alive you know and I I just couldn't see a way out of it, but I suppose what they how they name someone a functioning alcoholic is when on the outside it might look like they're coping, but on the inside you're just about winging every hour of the day. And I think I lived like that for yeah. ever while I was drinking. You mentioned the come down earlier, and from you know I'm I'm, I'm someone who's had a problematic alcohol relationship in the past and I've been on a three-day binge and I, I can feel that the shakes and the come down and that's often what that what gives me the urge to drink again because you desperately want to stop the shakes you want to stop that anxiety do you think that's perhaps what made you drink sometimes that the physical urge that physical craving to stop the shakes I, I never ever thought of it that way um, I, I wasn't, I remember I had to sign for something in the post office and I couldn't sign my name because my hand was shaking that much. And she mm. just looked at me and she said, that's not your signature. I remember that. But I, I, there was never a point I thought I need to drink to stop the shakes. It was more of the emotional state that I was in of, I want to have a drink. And there were times I didn't even feel like I needed. It was just something I did, and I loved it as well. It was a real love-hate relationship. I hated it in the morning with all my heart. I hated it. I hated what it had done to me. But the usual thing, by the afternoon, you start to feel a little bit better, and you might have had something to eat. And then that luring voice comes in and starts charming you again come on, Dave, you know tonight's going to be boring without a drink. Go on, just have the one, and I'll go on then. You know, anyone could twist my arm. I twisted my own arm. So it was more, I think it was more the emotional side that it turned the volume down on so many things. I'm naturally a huge overthinker, um, hyper-focused in literally everything I do and I will say since I've stopped drinking that's eased quite a bit although I still am but it was the overthinking so the only way I could describe it to you is is if you walked in and you heard the worst song in the world really loud on the radio that was my head by the time I got in and I used to pour a massive vodka with a tiny bit of tonic and neck it in one and it's like turning that radio down to zero so the noise had gone and, and that was what was my driver for the drinking and also it was like what else is there to do it actually makes me feel really good in the beginning uh, and I didn't worry about the middle bit and the end bit where I'd wake up at three in the morning I, it was just the beginning bit that I strive towards every single day and there was a part I also didn't think I could go a day as well it, it, I was on that rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat every single day. And there was part of it, Alex, which not a lot of people in the sober community admit to, is that it's a part I didn't actually want to give up either because it, it did its job on me and that was good enough for me. Whatever it meant, it was good enough because it, it did its job. You hear so often the, the phrase rock bottom and a drinker's darkest moment and that that's often what 
really prompted them to go into recovery and and to, and to not pick up again. Does does the phrase rock bottom resonate with you? And, and was there was there a particular dark moment with your drinking? Several, mate. Absolutely several. I mean, the one that sticks out is uh, Eastbourne. I'd uh, I was with someone then and. There was an argument indoors. The doctor had double-dosed my antidepressants, didn't even really ask me about my drinking. So I went up to double uh, 100 milligram on sertraline. Um, I was on four different medications for blood pressure, um, cholesterol, reflux. Um, I was 20 stone in weight. And I ended up driving down to Eastbourne, down the coast, and I just dumped the van in a side road. And I went straight to the Witherspoons there. Uh, and I drank there for 10 hours. Uh, made a load of fake friends. And, and it was Easter. And there was just nowhere to stay, but I didn't really care because I romanticised sleeping on the beach that night. And I, I bought uh, a, a bottle of vodka and I sat on the beach. And I don't remember a lot apart from waking up at about 3 in the morning, frozen, like literally frozen solid, with blood running all down my head, where I must have tried to get up and just fallen onto the pebbles. And I I did that for four days. So I was basically, I made myself kind of homeless for four days. Uh, I don't know how I survived that, because I've been there since, and it's pretty rough there at night. Um, You know, gangs of people around and that. So I don't know I didn't get mugged, or or the, the alcohol didn't kill me. Do you know what I mean? I still carried on after that, Alex. So I... I got home and I went to the doctors and I think they realised I'd made a massive mistake and I was in there for nearly an hour and I come out of there and I thought, I've I've got to do it. And within a week, I was drinking again. There were several other incidents that I don't want to take all the time up on this podcast, but probably 10, 20 rock bottoms where really it was enough to make most people stop. But I just wasn't in the headspace for it. it I, I just wasn't ready there was just, but although I say that, I kept saying to myself inwardly, I've got to do something about this. I've got to do something about this, you know. Um, and that went on for months. I mean, I remember one night I I was that drunk and I remember looking for paracetamol to take my life because I thought I, I'm, I'm no good to anyone. And I was li- literally chucking stuff out of drawers to try and find it. And then I gave up and I woke up face down on the floor with my coat on in the morning. And it's like, it kind of, it took a while for me to remember, but it was like, oh, what am I doing? You know, and if that's not a rock bottom, you know, and again, carried on, carried on, carried on. Thanks for sharing that. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to do, to share such a personal story like that. And that to me sounds like a session that would make the hardest drinker look in the mirror and and say this is enough this this has got to stop now if i carry on like this i'm either going to drink myself to death i'm going to have an accident which will take me or as you alluded to i'm going to take myself um it's it's brutal It, it when you get in that spiral of just not being able to stop and funnily enough you said Eastbourne you know that's um that's my hometown and uh I don't live there anymore but I'm, I'm in Brighton but I went out in Eastbourne once and I was similar I didn't not on the beach but in a in a park you know um in the morning and not sure how I got there so it's it's uh funny you know I'm looking forward to having you on this podcast and and and, and then such a relatable our paths have crossed in a way, even though different different times. But, yeah, and you know. I know the park I think you mean. And do you know what, Alex, what, what I do often is I go back to Eastbourne and I visit the pub, which I think was the Duke of Wellington. Is mm. that there? Yeah, yeah. Right? And, I, and I, I would, I've gone back there and sat where I used to sit. I've gone and sat on the bit of the beach that that happened. I've gone to the bar on the end of the beach, on the pier, mm. where I would get a drink early doors, just so it keeps me grounded where I am now, because I never want to move away from those experiences, because it keeps me level to where I'm in my life now. 
Um, it's really important for me. A lot of people wouldn't be able to do that, but for me, I find it important for me. And I must have gone back a few times and then I'd go for a big walk on the Seven Sisters there just to blow the cobwebs away. And it helps me moving forward because it helps me help others because when people come to me and they tell me of their problems, I can really relate to it emotionally rather than, well, actually, that was five years ago now and that memory is fading. I really want to stay with it but in a more healthy way rather than go back and it's, oh, my God. And it also gives me a measure of each time I go back there where I am now, which is really useful for me as well. I think it's so important, like you said, to have to really stay connected with that memory of why you stopped drinking because that that devil on your shoulder that that I suppose denial you could call it is is pretty strong and can be a loud voice sometimes and it can you know can maybe convince you that enough time has passed so maybe you can have a drink yeah. now and you can drink in moderation um and as we know it's it's seldom the case that anyone can can you know drink like a normal person quote unquote once you have that horrendous condition of alcoholism um super interesting um what made you stop what what was the catalyst that 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 made you start your sobriety there was a guy where i used to live and he was a fascinating man and uh, we'd gone out a few months before that and uh, we were just sitting there and he said, you know what, he was very um, godly. He had this instinct that he could meet you, Alex, and tell you something about your past and you would go, how the hell does he know that? He had the most incredible gift and he said to me, you're on the cusp of something absolutely incredible but I have no idea what it is but it's coming soon. And I had no idea what he was. I was drinking then. And it was Christmas 2018 was a car crash. And there was a picture of me. And I looked, it was like one of those OK magazines with a celebrity on the front. And they, <laughs> they were at their worst post, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God, you look hideous. And um, I did the whole New Year thing, get drunk and then carried on into January and I had no intention of doing dry Jan or anything like that. And one day, it was a Monday morning, uh, I'm sure it was a Monday, um, on the 7th of Jan and I got a text from Piers, my friend, and uh, it said, how do you fancy joining me for three months to take a break for alcohol to see where you are in your life and your health and... You know, and I looked at it and I burst out laughing. It was like, oh my God, you don't even know what, you don't know, I can't even have three days without it. You know, what are you doing to me? And I threw my phone across the van, like in disgust. <laughs> and, uh, but something happened that day. It was like a seed was planted, right? And I started to think about the way he phrased it to me. It wasn't, Dave, mate, you look a right mess. You need to stop drinking. It was, why don't you join me and to see how you are in three months? So I started visualizing that version of me in three months without alcohol. And I saw a happier person, a fitter person, a more productive person. And it kind of set something off inside me. So I remember I was in Collier's Wood, just heading towards... Um, where I lived at the time and I pulled over in this lay-by and I just texted him, are you in? And he said, yeah. He's never in, by the way, Alex. So this is serendipity, <laughs> honestly. I said, I'm coming to see you. And he's a big man. He looks like Foxy out of um, SS Who Dares Wins. He's an absolute ringer, right? And I walked <laughs> in and he's standing there and I looked at him and it was almost like there was some spell he put on me like, oh. And I looked at him and I went, Let's do it. And that was it. I hadn't drank since that moment. That was four and a half. I just, that was it. I was done. And it was like I dumped the narcissist, like the narcissistic relationship I'd been in for 40 years. I ended it right there and then on the spot and said, I'm not doing this anymore. And and I, when I say it's as simple as that, it wasn't, trust me. But on paper, it was. But 
there's a thing called spontaneous sobriety and it might look like that, that I just stopped. But to remember what I said in the beginning when I said I kept saying to myself, I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something about it. And I think that just mentally prepared me for that day that this is when I'm going to do something about it. And that was all so powerful about that self-talk to myself of it wasn't you're never going to be able to do it. It was you've got to do something about it. And that was that day, mate. And, and uh, you know, when I say I haven't looked back since, I haven't. Uh, I just haven't. It's the best thing I've ever done for myself ever in my whole life. Have you had any... Congratulations, by the way. I saw you recently, I mentioned at the beginning, I saw you recently celebrated, like you said, four and a half years sobriety. So, yeah. you know, incredible. And um, congratulations. I, I know how... Are you? Do you use any... any uh, systems i don't there's obviously the 12-step program and and various others are you are you involved in anything like that i tried aa in the beginning and i i love churches so that helped right i went in and it felt wonderful and i was greeted but after six or seven um i just felt i was hearing the same thing and i will caveat that by saying i should have tried other meetings so i don't want people here that do attend AA to be put off or think I'm one of them because I'm not but I just felt it wasn't working for me and in hindsight I should have maybe tried different meetings meet different people but there was something that felt like difficult for me to keep going back and and it's the repetitive I'm an alcoholic thing I don't like that label um I like to look at it that yeah, I know that if I have one drink, I'm screwed, but I'm not going to have that one drink. So I, I look as my recovery as discovery because I like to move forward. I like to be more positive about it and I like to view life as what's ahead rather than keep being in that I'm an alcoholic in 30 years time. But I, I do also know that helps people as well, which is fantastic. So after that, I left there. And I was a little bit snookered, but I, I, I didn't start drinking then. Um, and then I created my uh, Instagram and I saw there was an event online um, in Dalston. And uh, there was a couple of guys there, um, the Rock Sober Brothers, Janie Lee Grace, William Porter, a few Claire Pooley, big names in the sobriety um, field. And I thought, Do you know what, I'm going to go. Now, you know, Alex, if you're going out and you're nervous, what do you have, pre-drinks? Or you might have, you know, meet a couple of mates first in a pub and that. So I was going all the way to East London on my own, cold-blown sober after six weeks of not drinking after 40 years. And I was on the train and I got there to the event and that, and I was watching people going in. I thought, I can't go in. I'm, I just can't go in. And then half an hour later, I thought, this is stupid. I've got to go in. And if I hadn't have got in, the story could have been quite different. But I plucked up the courage, went in. It was packed in there. And I saw one seat on this sofa. And I headed for that. And as I sat down, I slumped in. And this bloke leapt up in the air. And his drink went all over him. It was like a carry-on film. You know, what an entrance I made. <laughs> but... It was a really wonderful event. And then afterwards, we all mingled and I met the, the Rock Sober brother, twi uh, like, uh, brothers, Lee and Sean, William Porter, who wrote Alco Explained and whatnot. And, and I, I left there, Alex, and I was like, oh, my God, these people are normal. These are like builders and architects. And, you know, there was a real array of people there. And I felt kind of accepted. And it wasn't the constraints of... You're an alcoholic and, and this. It was like a, a normal social thing, you know. And I went home and I got up the next day and a few people had sent me messages and that. And um, it was not long after that. I grew my Instagram account. I'd done a lot of um, cycling events, get fit. I've cycled London to Paris with peers, uh, London to Portsmouth, London to Brighton, all within six months. And bearing in mind, I was 20 stone. So me on the bike was like Shrek. All these other people were like whizzing past me up the hill and I was like, Ugh. but anyway, I did it. And then I had my own event in the September 
and uh, there was 85 people came, someone flew from Germany, and it was like really spurred me on to build a community because I, I think communities are so important, right? And then one day I just had this brainwave. It's like I've always been th- uh, fascinated in like the therapeutic world, you know, like helping and listening. And and I thought probably maybe like you, Alex, I'm going to do a podcast. I had no idea whatsoever about how to do a podcast or anything, you know. Um, and I got the stuff and I sat down and invited my first guest on and it went to number two in the Apple charts. And it was like, what the hell? I could not believe it. And I realized there was such a niche in this field of people silently struggling because of the shame wrapped around having a problem with alcohol and the stigma. And I realized that actually this holds a space for someone to tell their story and for others to hear it and feel they could hook onto it, like your podcast yourself, you know, and people get such a lot from it. And by that, I started to look for guests and that, and then I I realized that actually there are so many thousands and thousands of people just in the UK stopping drinking, but over the world it's massive. So there's got to be a space for people to, to go for, for support. That isn't just AA, because AA's been around since the 50s, and it's like the first thing you think about is, I must go to AA. But, you know, it's like going shopping. You might like this brand, I might like that brand, and, and that's fine, you know. And gradually throughout my sobriety, I start to get more and more people involved with, me, my life, I would go to their events, so we would do some lives, lockdown came along and uh, I become part of this thing called the Sober Sessions, which was a group of us that would just go online and people could ask us questions and and it just grew, mate. And then one of my catchphrases back in the day of drinking was, <laughs> you know, when you all flash, well, I could write a book about this one day. <laughs> so I thought, hello. <laughs> so I did. Um, and I write, I wrote my book and I trained to be a great... Now, the irony here, Alex, is I trained to be a grey area drinking coach. I certainly didn't fit in that criteria. Uh, I don't know if you did, but that, that means that you're not drinking every single day or you might be, but it's just a couple of glasses or you might go a week without a drink, yet you might binge at the weekends. You're basically not a take-it-or-leave-it drinker like at Christmas, or I'll have a nice sherry at Christmas, but you don't hit the rock bottom, so there's a big space in the middle, and a lot of people now are identifying into that model of their drinking, you know, grey area drinking. And um, it kind of helps take the stigma out of it as well, because when people think of you with a drinking problem, they do think of that stereotypical sitting on the bench with a brown bag, but there's a lot of people that are in this void of grey area drinking that, you know, is quite different from that. Hundred mm. percent. I mean, you think of alcoholic, or you can think of, I suppose that you, you, your mind jumps to the stereotype, which is potentially someone, you know, eight a.m. in the morning, staggering around central London with a bottle in their hand. When in fact, it's a lot of it can happen behind closed doors. There can be huge gaps between the sessions. They could potentially drink normally in social situations but then behind closed doors they could be binging themselves into a you know a violent shake three days later so percent yeah what's the biggest uh, the sobriety coach is fascinating what's the what's the biggest question someone comes to you with one of your clients well that's that's a whole other podcast in itself but a lot of people don't know how to be with their partners. There's That's a big question because if you stop drinking, if you've been with a partner that still drinks or your relationship was based around drinking and then one turns into a Puritan where they're eating healthily, they're going out exercising, they're losing a bit of weight, they, they're getting more glow to their skin, they're sleeping better 
and the other one's carrying on. It's how do you negotiate around that the change in the relationship? You know, that that's quite a big question. Um, how do I socialise without alcohol? You know, that that's a big one. Um, how do I go on holiday? There's all these things, right, that, that, that are the things that put people off from stopping. And what I say is, like, if you do take a 30-day break, right, you can explore all these different things. Like, what do I say to my friends? And, you know, a lot of lads out there are like, my mates will literally rip the piss out of me if I don't, don't have a beer tonight. So I say to him, well, then don't go. Make an excuse. You've got to give yourself the opportunity of how you'd feel after 30 days. And I've just brought out a, a course which is, it covers romanticising alcohol, how that when you take the break, after a few days you start to romanticise it. And you might have um, felt that, Alex, if you're going a few days, a few weeks, and you're feeling all chipper and you think, do you know what, I've got more energy. But then you think, it's Friday tomorrow and my mates were going out and the sun's out and I could just have the, the odd pint, like a pint, and you imagine the condensation running down the, the glass or the bottle and that's the romanticising. And I always say to people, how are you going to feel the next day? How is that going to affect the whole of your weekend? How do you feel if you've already done two weeks off and then you, you're back to square one with it, you know? Um, I moderation myths if you've just said earlier in the podcast it's like that myth of again i could just have one because i've gone a month without drinking uh and and 95 percent of people that develop an issue with their drinking cannot moderate that's fact right so you have one uh, like a lot of people come to me and they say uh, oh yeah, I had half a bottle of wine last night, and I put the lid back on, put it in the fridge. So that's all right. I've I've learned how to moderate, and and I'm right. Okay, let's check in in a week's time where and see where you are. And they go, oh, I'm back to normal now. In fact, I think it's a bit worse because they really go for it. So it's such a can of worms, Alex. But this is why I say you've got to rely on a lot of mental strength, support. Uh, find the right community, educate yourself. You know, education is key. And I think learning about your body, how how you are, you know, eating the right foods, doing the right exercise. If you said to me, actually, Dave, I'm down in Eastbourne next Saturday, and I am, let's go for a 5K and we can chat. I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't think of anything worse. But if you said, let's go for a 20K cycle ride or something, I'd be oh, I'd love that, mate. Let's, let's go, you know. So you have to find out what works for you. But I think the, the key element is to actually want to explore that change. It's like get to a place where you think, Do you know what, I want to see what my life is like when I remove alcohol. I just want to find out the evidence of it. And then you're halfway there. Do you think sometimes it's the the thought of the damage and the consequence and the effect that your drinking is having on the people around you, your friends, your loved ones, that can sometimes be a motivating factor to stop? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, and, and that was part for me when I wanted to take those tablets it was like I, I'm better off I'm too too much of a burden in people's lives you know but I also work with partners as well and the devastation that goes on in their lives um, and I recently did a talk in Suffolk and I met this woman there called Lucy and she won't mind me saying her story that she lost her husband at 41 years old to liver failure and he just turned yellow and, and dropped dead and left her and her two kids um and you know kids growing up as well in in that toxic environment of um excessive drinking how that affects them and you know it's not just having a beer with a with a lad it's the catastrophic effect it has on people around you is enormous i'm thinking about my own story just selfishly for a second and you know the effect um 
the the worry, and I'm sure you know this isn't an isolated story. Every alcoholic will relate. I'm sure the worry that you know you've inflicted on your family. It's a difficult one, and a lot of people struggle with the the regret from the past. And, and I, I kind of encourage them to think that you can be the example of how you live now. You know, there's not a lot you can do about the past, and there's certain situations you can't repair, and you have to deal with that. But I always say just be the example of who you are now, right? Be Do the right things. If, when you don't drink, you're always present. You've got more clarity. You make better decisions. Um, and, you know, it's what can you do with that from the past? You either try and apologize, repair it, or you have to move on. But it's how you sit with it. And for me, like for me, it's like I just have to accept I wasn't being myself. I was under the influence of a, a, a toxic drug that changed me every single day. And I know that I drank it, but I was also addicted to it. And I'm not, I'm not going to harp on about how I feel about these marketing companies, but it's it's rife wherever you look you know it's advertised as the drug that the drink that relaxes you i saw one down the tube station the other day and it was uh about jack daniels you know dealing with the past i've got to accept, accept that I was a different version of myself then and i i know i was the one that was drinking it but you know wherever you look there's advertising campaigns it's on sportswear on the banners around football pitches it's on supermarket railings you know i was in a traffic jam the other day and it was buy six bottles get 33 percent of it it's continuously shoved down your neck and it's the only drug you have to justify not having as well you know if you give up smoking or caffeine everyone's rubbing your shoulders and you say oh, i'm gonna stop drinking and you're called boring you know so i I just had to come to terms with it in the end and think, right, this is where I reset my life and I start again. And this is the version of myself that I'm going to concentrate on now. And I'm going to be truthful, kind. Um, I, I know that I'm going to have more clarity in my life. My mental health will improve. And as a side note, Alex, I was on those four medications when I was drinking and now I'm on none. So literally, I'm, the antidepressants have gone. Um, my blood pressure is back to normal. My cholesterol has dropped right down. And as for the acid reflux, I would projectile vomit acid at a drop of a hat. I wouldn't even know it was coming, right? And I, I don't I, occasionally, but that's, I think, normal anyway. But as in my body is now working how it's meant to work, you know, not not with a load of drugs inside me and medication and crap food that I used to have when I was drinking as well. So it's a, it's a case of moving forward, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I saw you reference happiness and I feel like you are probably happier now than you've ever been. Is that a, an accurate description? Yeah, absolutely. And that doesn't, you know, what I said in that post as well, it wasn't about having a Rolex on your wrist or, or a nice car, which is, of course, nice, but it was about the inner contentment. Feeling content within myself is like, actually, I'm really happy with who I am now. You know, I'm happy with the decisions I make, the life I've chosen to live. And that's what I mean about happiness rather than the external factors that we look for. And that's come from a lot of self-development, a lot of sitting with my feelings where I haven't sat with them for 40 years. And I've had to prioritise how I deal with those. So I've had therapy. You know, I invested in a fantastic therapist who's helped me unpack them. And it's helped me put them in order so I can move forward. You know, so it's it's more about the waking up in the morning, feeling content with who I am and what my life represents. You know, it's that that was what I meant. It's so true. You you when you're not shackled by 
booze by alcohol and, and you can live life on your own terms and you can remember your days and you're you get that control back and you're not a prisoner to to, yeah. to, the, to the bottle it is it's like poison ivy it wraps itself around your toe and then it goes up your shins, up your thighs and then it's round, before you know it's round your neck and you feel completely suffocated. I don't know if you felt like that, but once you break free, it, you know, I'm a very visual person, so it just reminds me of getting out of a really toxic relationship and you move on and you look back at it and, and I'm mindful it's still there. I don't take it for granted, the power it's got. I'm mindful of it but I've got my life back and I've got the control back now and I'm comfortable with that control as well because I, I'm managing without it quite fine. And I think that's what I mean about that label alcoholic. It's that that doesn't work for me because I, I'm constantly moving forwards and that feels quite restrictive to me. So I don't use it on myself anyway. And, you know, I've just come back from Morocco and climbed Mount Tubcal I could just about climb the escalators if they're broken down, <laughs> you know. And and uh, I'm going to Nepal for 17 days in the end of September to do the Annapurna circuit. And that's sleeping in tiny little tea houses. And it's really spiritual in the mountains there. And it's like, I cannot wait. But when I was drinking, my life was so small. All I used to do is look at the floor, like in, in a dark space. And it's like I've taken the blinkers off now and I've looked up and I've seen what's available there. And, you know, I'm a lot older than you, but for me, I think what I'm doing now is I'm making up for the four decades of where I've wasted my life. And to be honest, Ali, I could say, yeah, I've had some blinding times. I have. You know, it's not all been miserable. You know, I've had some really good fun times, but my drinking become, as you say, my prison. I was in, in my own prison. And that day on the 7th of January 2019, I found the key and I unlocked it and I walked out and I ain't gone back since. Do you think that you might have ADHD? Well... I think a couple of years ago, there was the, it, it was almost like one of the, the buzzwords, right? Oh, I think I've got ADHD. But since then, a lot of people I know that have had issues with alcohol have been tested and they've all been tested as having ADHD. Um, I haven't yet been tested, but I did have a genetic test done where they found out I've got a uh, faulty dopamine receptor. Um, I'm very low in serotonin. I'm low in vitamin D, low in B12, which means that what I said to you, I'll, I'll go on to tell you why I drank so quick, is because I'm I'm very all or nothing. Um, I'm very impulsive. So I could say to you, I'm not drinking, like when I was drinking, I'm not drinking tonight. And you go, oh, go on, have one. A bit like that night when I said I'm only having one and ended up getting home at four in the morning. Um, but it's the obsessive behaviour I've got. I will focus on something and I will just continually focus. Like I said to you before about the eBay purchases, mm. when I was drunk, I'd wake up to an email and as I don't even remember buying something for 600 quid, you know, I would just <laughs> obsess over it. Um, but the fact I've got a faulty dopamine receptor means that um, I could have something good happen and within five minutes I feel quite low again. So I have to work at that. Um, and I think that's what creates binge drinking in people. You know, people that binge drink are always looking for that, that dopamine hit. And I believe one of the signs of uh, having ADHD is low dopamine, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean it, it's it's and other things, but yeah, definitely that plays a big part. And I think the the impulsivity with combined with the option to drink, it's that it's it's linked to a lot of things: impulse spending, impulse drinking, and then once you get that kind of that rush, that that feel good feeling, then well, and the overthinking as well, right? Because um, a lot of me, including, are huge overthinkers, right? When you drink it stops, it slows it down. It's a bit like that radio thing I said, you know, it just turns it down, the volume. Um, 
my overthinking is ridiculous and I've had to really manage it since I've stopped drinking because you can't just stop drinking and it all goes away. It, sometimes it ramps up twice the volume, you know. But there's mindfulness that I take um, a vitamin D spray, a B12 spray, magnesium, to try and help me manage these symptoms rather than just turn into alcohol because you can't just take it out and expect it all to fit into place, as you know. You have to fill the void with things. You have to revisit hobbies. You need to find other dopamine hits outside taking a drug. Do you know what I mean? So it could be exercise. It could be something else, you know, um, climbing a mountain. (laughs) But, you know, you you can't just expect to take that huge part of your life and expect everything to be all right. So, But finding out things, and it's something I'm going to explore soon, I think, is to maybe get tested to see. if I have got that, because as I say, a lot of people I know have, and I, and I think there's such a link between excessive drinking and ADHD. It, it's coming to light more and more now. There definitely seems to be. I've spoken to a lot of people with ADHD, and there's a trend that our problematic drinking is something that crops up time and time again, and even in support groups for problematic drinking adhd crops up time and time again so i don't know the science but there's a clear link and i think it's down to that impulsivity it's that overthinking you need something to quiet your mind alcohol does that certainly does for me and then when you get that it's such a nice feeling that then the impulsivity kicks in and you want to get some more and then you want some more and then you want some more and then it goes from there. That's kind of the, the, the trend I've seen. There's another one as well, right? Is when, when I was drinking, I could never read because I was too drunk. So I thought, oh, that's good. I'll stop drinking. I'll be able to read now. And I still can't because it's the lack of focus I've got as well of my concentration. I, I, I And I've written a book. <laughs> but, it, you know, I'll read a line or two. And, and it would be not take a line, read a line. And um, I, I just keep going over the same lines. And this is why I'm going to record an audio book because more and more people have been asking for the audio book version, right? Because they can't read. I, I don't mean they can't read. They can't read more than a paragraph or a few lines of text. And I, and I think that's, is that, that's part of uh, ADHD, isn't it? Lack of concentration. Uh, broadly yes reading for me i can't i can't read i can read obviously i can't read more than a couple of paragraphs before i lose interest and i'm thinking about something else yes exactly it so would you be more of an audio person like listen to a book or does that affect you as well i run a lot and i like to consume things all through my ears to listen to in headphones when i'm running that's my sweet spot of like content consumption podcast music audio books it's when i'm running when my when my body is preoccupied with something else something physical exercise then that's enough to keep my mind engaged just enough with worrying about yeah. the running that my brain can then calm down a little bit and actually take in what is coming through the headphones and, and i also think alex that there's a real problem these days as well there's a book by Johan hari called stolen focus and he talks about that is nowadays where we scroll and we lose interest within how many seconds it is. I think we're all in that nowadays of like our threshold for taking in knowledge is so low that this is why a lot of people I think are struggling with reading a book. But I've bought myself a Kindle and I'm going to try and practice to see (laughs) how I get on with it. And it's already gone flat. So... I think there's an answer there. <laughs> oh, Dave, this is this has been really fun. Um, I think that's a really nice place to to end the conversation as well. I think um, I've I've certainly learned a lot, and the relatability factor for me and for for, for many others as well. Because as I said, I've got a very big ADHD audience, and one of the common, most common problems with 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 the audi- with my audience is, is drinking. Um, so I think people will listen to this and they'll feel less alone and they'll feel 
the relatability will be there and also i think there's been some great tips as well for 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 people as well and um if people want to find you where where can they look well i'm on instagram at sober dave and that's probably the best place to find me but i want to just end it as well there alex is that you know my story is quite um dramatic but it's not about how much you drink it's about how it makes you feel and that's really important to know that because there are people that come to me and they might just say i drink half a bottle of wine a night and and I, my anxiety is shocking and i want people to hook into that as well that is how drinking makes them feel um how you know going for the week without drinking and binging at the weekend and say or or if it's a couple of glasses of wine with dinner and they struggle to put kids to bed or you know, if they're down the pub with their mates and they're the ones that stay on when the other lads have gone home and there's so many strains to it, but it's it's important that if it makes you feel anxious, depressed, if it's compromising your mental health, your relationships indoors, your, your relationship with your kids, it's important to maybe explore, maybe looking at it. So this is where I work, encouraging people to, to maybe take a look at it, not right, you need to stop today. It's more like, why don't you see how it is? And that's what worked for me. So that's where I'm at, Sober Dave, on Instagram. Uh, all my stuff's on there, my podcast, book, course, I've got a new course, but there's loads of content on there, as you know, Alex, that can maybe help people. I, I like to see my pages like a resource page rather than a personal, look, I'm eating cornflakes this morning kind of page. You know, it's more... <laughs> More, more help and support for people, I think. I'll link all of that in the show notes for people to find. Thanks again, Sober Dave. David, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Alex. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.